0: Greetings and welcome back to HB Media Minute, our podcast series focused on legal developments and trends impacting the media and entertainment industry, intellectual property, and open government and First Amendment law. This is our third episode. If you're a returning listener, thanks for your support. I'm Nathan Koppel, Haynes and Boone's Director of Media Relations. Today, on the eve of the U.S. election, we are fittingly talking about the workings of the government, in particular, the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on government transparency, including public access to governmental meetings and open records. Joining us today is partner Tom Williams, who has decades of experience handling cases involving First Amendment issues and claims of libel, invasion of privacy and, and other issues impacting the media clients that Tom represents. Apropos of today's discussion, Tom recently wrote an article titled Restrictions on Open Government and Public Information during COVID-19. That article is available on the firm's COVID-19 resource page at haynesboon.com, and I highly recommend that listeners check that out as a companion to today's podcast. Before we get going today, our usual disclaimer. This podcast is for informational purposes only, is not intended to be legal advice, and does not establish an attorney-client relationship. The topics we discuss are subject to change. Legal advice of any nature should be sought from your legal counsel. Okay, before we look at some of the obstacles that the pandemic has placed in the way of accessing public information, Tom, I'd like you to to please remind listeners of some of the basic tenets that governmental agencies need to follow in the normal course of business.
1: Sure. And thank you, Nathan. Glad Glad to be here with you today. The basic philosophy behind open government laws is simply that government's business should be conducted in the public. And so the philosophy behind a public records law is that records concerning activities of government, with certain exceptions, uh, should be available to the public. And similarly, with open meetings laws, uh, the philosophy is that meetings of governmental bodies Uh, should be conducted in public, and that entails uh, the right of the public to attend, uh, to know what's going to be on the agenda, and things of that sort. Every state has some sort of public records law and some sort of open meetings law. Obviously, the details vary widely, uh, but every state has got something, and that's sort of the philosophy underpinning all of them.
0: And, of course, the world changed in March with uh, the pandemic. The the Trump administration and I presume all 50 states issued disaster declarations because of COVID-19. When that sort of thing happens, a disaster declaration, does that automatically and, and completely relieve agencies of their obligations under these open government laws?
1: It, it certainly does not do so automatically. Now, m- many states, including Texas, Uh, Have provisions in their uh, open government laws addressing temporary disasters, things of that nature. Uh, And then we've got the greater problem that we've dealt with this year of of an ongoing situation. Uh, Most states do not have anything in the existing statutes contemplating what we've seen this year. Many of the state by state disaster declarations. Uh, have had an effect on this, and then as and uh, we'll, we'll get into this in a moment. There, there's also just been the, the practical consequence of how uh, governments uh, have been operating for the last seven or eight months.
0: Yeah, I guess when you think about the typical kind of disaster, or I guess we're, you know we're talking about weather or things of that nature. That's a pretty temporary sort of issue.
1: Th- that's right. What we what we've had in the past have been uh, disasters that have been both temporary and localized. Mm -hmm. And you you mentioned weather. That's the classic example. So um, a a tornado comes through uh, a particular town. Uh, Well, the government and the governmental offices in that town are shut down for some period of time generally a matter of days perhaps in an extreme situation longer uh, but it's it's geographically limited and limited in time what we of course what we're dealing with now is a situation that affects everyone uh, and has been going on for quite some time and presumably will continue for a while
0: so what we've got is the, the as you mentioned most states have their all of their basic open government laws and baked into those are exceptions that are oriented towards disasters but but really no, nothing anticipates the kind of thing that we've been dealing with here I suppose
1: that's correct and and of course where the disasters both the old old-fashioned kind of disasters <laughs> if you want to think of it that way the, the typical weather uh, type situation uh, and what we're seeing now where, where the real consequence comes in is the response time and compliance or non-compliance by governmental bodies with deadlines to respond to open records requests. And that's where we've really seen the greatest effect.
0: On that note, let me ask you, Tom, if you can turn your attention to Texas, where where you're based. Um, And and just incidentally, Tom is a a partner in our Fort Worth office of Haynes & Boone. Um, How has the pandemic impacted the workings of open government uh, here?
1: Well and, and I th- I think Texas is a is a good illustration. As I said at the beginning, every state's law is a little different and so any listener in another state would have to, you know, study uh, the, the law of the that particular state. But but ours is I think sorta of illustrate illustrates the problem. Like any open records law, our Public Information Act has uh, deadlines for compliance, and so when a governmental body receives a request for information, uh, it has a deadline to respond, and, uh, and the procedure goes all the way out, um, and that's typical. In the Texas law, the deadlines are expressed in terms of business days, so not days, uh, but business days. The statute does not define business day. And what has happened over the years, and this pre-Tom,
0: I'm just going to jump in there. That's both as to giving notice of an open meeting and deadlines to respond to public information are stated in the terms of business days.
1: Um, that good, that's a good question. Thank you for r- reminding me of that distinction. No, what, what we're talking about now is under our public information act, our public records law. The, the, we happily, we don't have that issue with the open meetings act because its notice requirements are expressed in terms of days. Uh, and in some cases, even hours. Uh, we have had some pandemic issues with respect to open meetings act dealing with meeting remotely, uh, but at least we have not had the, the business day problem on the open meeting side. Uh, but we have very much had it on the Public Information Act side. And what, is, what has happened, uh, Nathan, uh, because we have this term business days with no definition, the Attorney General's office for many, many years preceding this pandemic and even preceding this Attorney general has interpreted that term to mean a day on which the particular governmental body receiving the request is open for business. And so, for example, if a particular governmental body um, might choose to close for some you know, regional event or some local event that is not actually a, a legal holiday, um, that day did not count as a business day. And as as part of that interpretation over the years, uh, the Attorney General's office has used the term skeleton crew and has said that if the governmental body is operating only on a skeleton crew, that does not count as a business day. And so if it's not a business day, it doesn't count toward the calculation of the deadlines. Well, what has happened this year is... um, Many governmental bodies and with the support so far, at least of the attorney general's office, have taken the position that if the offices are essentially closed, even though everybody's still working, uh, it is not a business day. So uh, we could have you know all of our staff working remotely and doing the same thing they would be doing if they were sitting at their uh, desk in the municipal building. Uh, but if that's the case, we're on a skeleton crew and it does not count as a business day. There are s- some governmental agencies out there in Texas that are taking the position that they have not had a single business day since the middle of March. Hmm. And obviously, if, 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 I don't have, if, if business days haven't started to run, I cannot miss, I cannot be late with a deadline because the deadline hasn't run. So th- that's been the biggest impact we've seen uh, in Texas under the Public Information Act.
0: And, and Tom, I know as, as a former reporter, when I would file a public information request, I mean, I would usually want information within the hour. You know, I felt like it was critical that I get this information now. So I, I can only imagine people seeking out public information, and they're probably uh, just waiting days after day after day, and not not knowing, you know, how long this this will last. It's probably been putting a lot of people in a state of limbo.
1: That that's correct. Now the the more Responsive government agencies uh, are doing their best, and are uh, particularly with with the routine kinds of requests where there's really not any issue about uh, the, the public availability of the requested information. You know, they're processing them, and from what we're hearing anecdotally, most are doing okay. Where the where the impact is really being felt is on a request for an item that. It, Might not necessarily be uh, something that must be disclosed, or there might be some issue that where the governmental body might want to seek an attorney general's ruling, and those are just staying out there in some cases indefinitely.
0: I mean, Tom, do you does an agency waive its right to uh, invoke a delay if they respond to one request in a timely manner? Does that mean does that sort of prove that they can do so and? and, and you know, would not allow them to avail themselves of a delay, a COVID nineteen related delay, and for other requests.
1: Well, I, and, I, and I think that's an interesting uh, question, an interesting argument. it it'll, it'll it would take a court case to test it, and no one has uh, has done that yet. Um, the agencies that that I've seen and that I've had dealings with uh, will will say. Um, you know, sort of like a reservation of rights letter that you see in other contexts. They'll say, well, uh, we're on skeleton crew, so we don't have to respond, but we're going to anyway just because we are. But that doesn't waive any of our rights in any other case or any of that situation. And that's how it's being played out. It's, it, I'm afraid it's going to take somebody litigating one of these to, to know for sure what the answer is.
0: Let me ask you about you you'd, you'd reference remote meetings uh, and how have those been handled since the pandemic? and what what impact has the pandemic had on uh, on open meetings? Well,
1: and again, i use Texas uh, because I'm in Texas, and I think it's a good illustration of the issue. Uh, The details uh, may differ in in other states. Uh, But the effect of the pandemic on open meetings is as much as it has been on meetings in the private sector, uh, moving them to remote platforms, Zoom and WebEx and other video conferences. In, In Texas, an Of course, the the fundamentals of the Open Meetings Act, uh, as in most states, if not all, uh, is premised upon a physical meeting where where human beings have gathered in a single identified public space where the meeting occurs and where the public can come and attend. Um, Until 2013, we really did not have much in Texas in the way of authority to conduct remote meetings. There was a, there was and still is a provision for meeting by telephone conference call in case of a true emergency where the, the meeting had to take place on such short notice that members of the governing body couldn't get together. But that was about it. And then uh, the legislature did add some provisions for uh, authorizing remote meetings. What are what our current statute says, and I'm going to get to the governor's proclamation in a moment, but what our current statute says is that for most governmental bodies, a, a quorum still must be physically present at the meeting location, but... Other members can attend remotely. So let's just use hypothetically a a nine-member city council. Uh, At least five would have to be present physically at the location of the meeting. Uh, The other four could participate remotely. Uh, For for some state agencies and other agencies that that cover large territories, uh, the law allows as few as one to be at the physical location. So in other words, the presiding officer must be at the physical location, but everyone else can be remote. So that's what the statute says, and that's how we operated uh, before March. One of the governor's emergency proclamations waived the requirement for the quorum to be present and waived the requirement for the presiding officer to be present at a, a public place. So now a a governmental body in in Texas uh, may have a truly remote meeting where no two people are in the same location. Now, the order provides that to do, first of all, the order provides this is permissible, not required. So a local city council, to use that example, may still meet in person the old-fashioned way if it chooses to do so. So, but it, it it can be a truly remote meeting. Now, the proclamation does require that if the governmental body is going to do that, they have the technological uh, capabilities so that the public can log on and see it. And it has to be interactive, much as it would be if you were having um, a face-to-face meeting. and And that has become... Fairly common. Uh, some, some are still meeting in person in the sense that at least the presiding officer comes to the city hall or the courthouse or the school administration building, whatever it is, um, and everyone else participates remotely. So some are, are doing it truly remotely.
0: This strikes me as a tough one, Tom. I and mean, certainly, you could argue it's responsible when we're dealing with a highly transmissible virus to do things remotely to the extent possible. But the idea behind this is to is to have allow the public access, and some may not have the means to log on remotely. and And you want these to be as interactive as possible. And I think we all agree that in person meetings are, are still preferable to the virtual kind.
1: I think that's right. I think you've summed up the dilemma well. And it really, to me, it's not unlike what we're dealing with in the business world. I mean, we've all now attended many Zoom meetings and they're, you know, it's different. There's no question about it. And you, you lose some of the um, interaction. Uh, I think it's particularly challenging here where uh it It's not so much the interaction between the members of the city council. I'll continue to use that as an example as it is the public i mean first of all, it assumes they have the uh ability to log in and have the have have their own computer and, and can do it. Uh, but even if they do it, it's it's not quite the same. You're you're watching a screen as opposed to being in a building and being part of the meeting and feeling like you're uh, really watching the meeting as it occurs. It is interesting, though, as you say, Nathan, some, yeah. some of the, and, and again, this is based on what we're hearing anecdotally, There's, it's not the kind of thing that's going to be litigated, so we don't have court cases to look at. But some of the public bodies that have have tried to maintain the physical meeting uh, routine or have gotten pushback for the reason you say. People say, I, you know, I don't want to go to the courthouse and sit in a crowded Room with a bunch of other people, so it's it's a tough one. Uh, but I guess I guess like
0: like everything else, it's probably best to have a hybrid model where you have, it to the extent possible, in person uh, component and also available virtually.
1: I, th- I think that's right, and, and particularly in the larger cities where uh, the, the governmental bodies you know have good IT departments and uh, uh, have access to good technology, that that's where most of them seem to be going. And um, it's I think. The best you can do under the current circumstances
0: Tom this is a good segue into my next question, which is a little bit more of a kind of a norm, normative question for you, and that is here we are we 're dealing with a pandemic, the likes of which um, country hasn 't experienced in easily in a hundred years. Um, is it fair and reasonable in this kind of situation to give states and governmental agencies leeway to, to relax the rules and restrictions that govern, uh, you know, open government, uh, open government standards? Uh, or is it, you know, even more important now to ensure transparency to the workings of the government? They're making so many critical decisions now about how to deal with the pandemic. So, is now not the time to relax these standards.
1: Well, and and I I think, you know, outline the issue issue well. Um, I I think most people would agree that when there is a true temporary disaster, uh, some flexibility has to be be brought into play. Uh, And in fact, in, in Texas specifically, we Put that in the statute in the last legislative session in, in 2019, and that was uh, one of the many bills that the legislature passed in response to the Hurricane Harvey situation. But Hurricane Harvey uh, was ha- had its greatest impact in some some smaller cities on the Gulf Coast, uh, and you know there really was no way they could respond to public records requests and, and things of that nature. So the legislature enacted a a section of our law last session that allows a governmental body to uh, file a disaster declaration uh, for a period of seven days and can be extended for an additional seven days that suspends uh, the running of any deadlines. Now, remember, this is different from the skeleton crew issue we talked about before this, this assumes that it's a business day, but uh, that a particular governmental body, because of some temporary situation, uh, is is out of commission. But that's a precise statute, and, and as I said, it it uh, can be. It, it is supposed to last only fourteen days, and that's not what we have seen here. So I, I think uh, what the Texas legislature, which convenes in January, is going to have to look at, and other legislatures in other states as well, is you know, finding a, a balance uh, that recognizes that there can be and will be you know, tr- true disaster situations that have to be taken into effect, but that it cannot be allowed to continue indefinitely. You know, the concept of the temporary disaster is one thing, and and no one quarrels with that. Uh, but to have the situation that we've had to deal with this year where it can just last indefinitely is not consistent with the philosophy of open government laws.
0: We well, you, you certainly think COVID-19 will, will trigger rulemaking on a lot of fronts. And, and this, to to your point, is is certainly one of them that will need to be addressed. I, I want to uh, end, I guess, by asking you the extent to which um, – some of these delays and, and the impacts that COVID-19 has had on open government laws, has, in, has it triggered disputes um, in Texas and beyond? Have there been lawsuits or complaints that, that you've noticed?
1: There have been plenty of disputes and complaints, uh, fewer lawsuits. Um, and unfortunately, that's a, uh, that's a situation we see in Texas and most other states uh, that short of a lawsuit, the enforcement mechanism is, is uneven. Um, and for, for example, in Texas, a governmental body which misses an applicable deadline will have waived some of the exceptions to disclosure if it goes to court, but that presumes it goes to court. And uh, these laws work best when you don't have to go to court to enforce them. I mean, I mean obviously, uh, even for the most sophisticated user of these statutes, like a news organization, you know, only rarely is one going to be such that you can consider litigation. And certainly for an average citizen, that's almost non-existent. So um, what I hope we will see in Texas and other states that have had this problem is a legislative solution that tries to strike a balance and comes with it you know some sort of mechanism short of litigation uh to ensure that these don't just go indefinitely as we've seen this year.
0: Well, Tom, thanks so much for this. We'll have to check back with you maybe another 6 months and see see where we are with with this once uh legislatures in Texas and, and start addressing these issues. Much appreciated. Any any before we sign off any other <laughs> topics no, or issues where you'd I, like to have
1: I've enjoyed the conversation with you uh, Nathan and I, I do agree we we this will be a, an ongoing issue and a you know sort of a moving target and as legislatures convene uh, next year in Texas and elsewhere uh, we do need to keep an eye on and Of course, our firm will do so as, with our updates and uh, it might be the subject of another program in six months
0: or so. Great. Well, thank you, Tom. Uh, i like to remind our listeners that you can find this podcast and other content, including... Haynes & Boone's media, entertainment, and First Amendment newsletter at com. You can also find our annual media and entertainment law year in review at com as well. And that year in review covers a lot of key developments, including the one Tom discussed today in 2019 and 2020. Um, Please also feel free to reach out to myself or to Laura Prather, the head of Haynes & Boone's media and entertainment litigation practice, if you'd like to suggest topics for us to cover in future podcasts. Thanks and take care.